Good morning. Please open your Bibles to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, you'll find the notes this morning's message in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text in the back of the notes, or if you're watching online, the link on our church website. This morning, God willing, we will complete this next paragraph in James' letter. We got about halfway through this last week, and then we paused, and we'll pick it up this week. I'd like to begin our time by reading James 4, 13 to 17. I'll have a word of prayer, and we will begin our study. James 4, 13 to 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? If you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord lives, we will live and do this. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Lord God, we don't want to boast in this way. We want to depend on you. We want to be aware of our dependence on you. And we want to speak as those who depend on you. So let us hear this correction. Let us adopt this manner of speech and thinking. Let us not just know the good to do, but let us do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, last week when we began looking at this, I tried to explain how this ties into the larger themes in James. And in short, James's epistle is focused on the reality that true faith works itself out in good deeds and works through life's trials by relying on the wisdom of God. That's kind of my thesis for the, book, the letter of James. And James is going to look at true faith working itself out in life's trials, relying on God's wisdom in three domains, primarily. In the domain of the tongue and how you speak, in the domain of wealth and how you deal with the rich and the poor, and how you deal with the world. And so addressing how people speak ties in with that, and addressing those who have some level of wealth ties in with that. Also, more locally, this ties in with the extended discussion about those things which create conflict and discord in the church, those evidences of worldly wisdom, which James links this with. This may be how worldlings speak and act. It ought not to be how Christ's church speaks and acts. Next, we considered whether... These people he is speaking to here are the same people he addresses in chapter 5. That's an important question because the rich of chapter 5 have no hope. He's pronouncing judgment on them. Maybe by implication, similar to how Nineveh, there's an implication perhaps they might repent. But if you look at 5, 1 through 6, it's just weep, howl, wrath is coming for you. And he introduces... 413, the same way he introduces 5.1, come now, you, and then he addresses the people. And so some have linked them together. I suggest that even though the, the thought progresses here, by virtue of the fact that James gives these people something to do positively, he, he's attempting to correct them. 
And also, those who have the wealth to travel are not necessarily the rich. When we read this passage, we don't want to think of this as referring to the uber-rich. I've said last week, if you've taken a vacation, if you've gone on a business trip, you qualify. It's certainly not the poor. The poor aren't planning year-long business trips. But living in the wealthiest time in the wealthiest country in the world, this probably speaks to more of us than we'd like to think. This is simply someone who has enough wealth, enough material prosperity to be making plans a year out. That's what we're dealing with here. And we saw that the speech that these people are making is confident, overly confident. There's a self-confidence that is evil. And that's what's evidenced here. And they're, they're confident about when, today or tomorrow, where, here, this city or that city, how long they'll be there, a year or so, what they will do, will be trading, and, and with what effect they'll be making profit. And, and we considered how the statement itself doesn't appear evil. I don't think many of us red flags would go up. Now, James calls it evil. That, that's why we got to pay attention. James is going out of his way to highlight this. Look at verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So here's an evil that I think we're not hardwired to identify and spot. It's the type of evil that can easily slip in. And it's not the evil of making plans. It's the evil of making plans not dependent upon the Lord, to making plans apart from factoring and there's a living God in whom we live, breathe, and have our being. Making plans like an atheist, just God's not there. Trusting in your own ability. We considered how wealth and prosperity naturally pulls our hearts into trusting in it, into forgetting God. We looked at the warnings in the Old Testament. We consider that perhaps God hasn't given you as much wealth as you might like precisely to keep you from falling away. It may be a kindness on his part. We consider that the, those with this world's belongings are ignorant and unaware. That's his rebuke to them. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. We're making these plans. And we live in a world directed by a sovereign God. We just something as simple as a coronavirus. How many millions or billions of people's plans did that wreck in effect? And, and just even ministering these last two weeks, I've seen how plans for one family, tragedy comes, difficulty comes, and things change. We are ignorant of what the future holds, and we're also unaware of our own transience. We think we're more powerful than we are. We think we're more effectual than we are. We think we can accomplish more than we can. And so James indicates that planning like this is planning in ignorance. Now, this morning, we're to pick up in verses 15 through 17 what to do. He not only gives a correction, but he gives a put on. What, what should I do in its place? Read with me verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So that's what we ought to do, the command for right speech, thinking, and action. Now, this is not a command that every time you say something, you just tack on to the end, if the Lord wills. That can be a good thing to do sincerely, but please don't think you've fulfilled James's 
instruction here. If every time you speak in the future tense, you simply put if the Lord wills on. What we're getting at is a heart attitude, a way of thinking. And you can mindlessly say, if the Lord wills, and I think still be guilty of everything James says here. What we need to do is remember and remind ourselves daily that we live and breathe and exist on God's good pleasure. So the first blank here is the command for right speech, verses 15 to 17. And your first blank under that is speak. Instead, you should say. Now, the assumption of the Bible is the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The words that come out of your mouth reflect your heart, which is why it's not a simple matter of just say these things. Rather, believe these things in your heart and speak accordingly. So what ought we to do? We ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And the point to understand here is that his will is decisive. His will is decisive. Now, we, we live in a world where God allows us to make choices, to act. We have volition. We do things. And the things we do have consequence. But we must always remember that God's will trumps and is sovereign over all of that. The scripture is replete with examples of man planning one thing and God planning another. And God's will is accomplished. His will is decisive. The Apostle Paul speaks this way in Acts 18, saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders. But on taking his leave, he said to them, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. We also remember that when you don't have much, when you're powerless, when you're in danger, you become aware of what is true for each and every one of us at all times, that we are upheld only by God's sovereign grace. The problem is that when we grow in prosperity, when we grow in possessions, we forget that. When you're really praying, give us this day our daily bread because you don't know where today's bread comes from. You are intimately aware of your reliance upon the Lord. It's only when you've got the money for bread for a year to come that you forget that you forget. And we must remember that his will is decisive. To put it simply, he gets to be God. He gets to be God. Turning your Bibles to Isaiah 40, I just want to show you a couple of passages. This is no new doctrine. This is one of those doctrines that distinguishes God from man. You're blank here. God is sovereign over the nations. I'm sure you live in a world where nations are rising and descending, political upheaval. There's been a lot to concern us in the last years. As you look on the global stage, you can interpret it differently. I want you to see how, how important and significant the nations are to God. Isaiah 40, starting in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. The United States, 
China, North Korea, pick your nation, is a drop in the bucket to the living God. As dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastland like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Look a little later in chapter 46 of Isaiah. Well-known passage. In chapter 46, starting in verse 5, he, he challenges Israel. Who, who, who do you really think I'm like? The, the primary reason Israel is forbidden from imaging God is by imaging God, by implication, they're saying he's kind of like this bull or he's kind of like this tree. And the whole point is he's not. That God's holiness is his otherness. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift up their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from trouble. Now, in contrast to this impotent, powerless idol, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God. There is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. In what way is God unique? In what way is God different from all others? Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. And it's not simply that God knows the future. He does know the future. But he goes on to clarify, it's not simply that I can tell you what's going to happen. I will accomplish all my purpose. Not some of my purpose, not a lot of my purpose, not most of my purpose, all of my purpose. I will tell you the end from the beginning. And as I look at the end from the beginning, I see all my purposes accomplished. The living God says, that makes me different from these deaf, mute idols. Calling a bird of prey from the east and a man of my counsel from a far country. I've spoken and I'll bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Now he's speaking here on a national scale. He's talking about bringing Cyrus in. He's talking about gathering Israel up, gobbling them up through Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. The Lord is sovereign over the affairs of nations. And if he's sovereign over the affairs of nations, we also realize that the macro scale he's sovereign, but he's also sovereign at the micro scale. He's sovereign over his church. Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his step. You can't help but read through your Old Testament and you hear about things happening and frequently the narrator will add in, this was a turn of affair from the Lord's. Even Joseph to his brothers, speaking of them, selling him into slavery. Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Even as they plotted evil, they were accomplishing God's purposes. 
They're still guilty of planning evil. God is still praiseworthy for planning good. This is the world we live in. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6. I want you to see just how sovereign and dependent upon God we are. Hebrews chapter 6. Therefore, verse 1, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, and faith towards God. I have instructions about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection from the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. You mean God might not permit a body of believers to go on to maturity? They'll only do it if he permits. Will you receive any benefit from the hearing of God's word this morning? If God permits, you will. That's the world we live in, where God wills and permits and declares, and his counsel stands fast. And yes, he tells us to plan, and he tells us to act, and he tells us to be wise. And he also tells us never to forget he is sovereign. We will leave this service alive today if God permits. We will draw our next breath if God permits. That, that's the universe and the world you and I live in. And that can be intimidating because it means we are totally dependent upon another. Completely, absolutely dependent. Our next blank, our lives are his. Not only is his will sovereign, he owns us. Our lives are his. We will live and do this or that. Deuteronomy 8, 17 to 18, we looked at this last week. I'll read to you. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm the covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. And again, God repeatedly takes credit for these things. We just forget about them. They don't make good greeting cards. They don't work so well on the flannel graph. But listen to Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I am he, there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. And we praise God for the giving of life. Each one of my children, I praise God for giving us this gift. We praise God for the gift of each other's lives, but God also takes life as well. And when he does, he does us no wrong. Oh, we grieve we mourn. We're going to gather tomorrow to grieve and mourn and celebrate God taking a life. But he does us no wrong because we are his. He gave, he took away. This is what Job said. Even as he abased himself and mourned and wept, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. If you'll remember, this is after 
every one of his children in one day and all of his were killed. House collapsed, strong wind knocked it down, and all of his herds and cattle were robbed from him. In one day, complete economic collapse and all of his children dead. And that didn't mean he didn't weep and mourn. Trusting in God's sovereignty doesn't mean you become a fatalist who just, well, okay. But it does mean we recognize God can do as he pleases. He gets to be God. And God wants us to remember that and factor it into our plans and our thinking. He wants us to factor it into how we speak. Now, I know, I know this, this can be challenging. Your next blank, he gives and takes away. T turn to Romans 8. Because I think this truth, the truth of the absolute sovereignty of God, needs a complementary truth to be as beautiful as it is. We live in a world where God gives life and he takes life. He heals, he wounds, he opens the womb, he closes the womb, he makes blind and deaf, he does as he pleases in heaven and earth, he accomplishes all of his will. And that can be kind of frightening. Because if we're that dependent upon him, what if he means ill for us? What if, what if he determines in his plan that tragedy and difficulty will come to our home? And Romans 8 marries the truth of God's sovereignty with the equally important truth of his goodness and his kindness and his mercy to us. The good news is the one who is in control of all things, the one who leads the planets out, the one who tells the lightnings and the storms to go here and there, that one loves you, sent his son for you, and says, trust me, I am working all things together for your good. Let's, let's read this. I insert here starts us at 35, but let's go back to um, 28. Let's go back to 26. Because 26 factors in the pain and travail and the groanings in this life. I want you to see that Romans 8 is, starts in a context of this is an awful, at times, world. Difficult. Creation's groaning. We're groaning. God's spirit within us is groaning. And in that context, Paul writes some of the most encouraging and beautiful words in Scripture. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. If we did not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what is the spirit mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So we live in the universe with a God who controls all things, whose purpose will be accomplished in all things. Nations or a church trying to grow. And that can be frightening because then we are completely dependent on his will. Remember, he has promised us that he is causing all things to work together for our good. Not necessarily, and we'll see in Romans, good doesn't necessarily mean for our immediate happiness. There are plenty of things that are good that are not pleasant. Dentist visits are good. 
They're not always pleasant. Going to the gym, it's good. For some of us, more good than others. Not always pleasant, right? We, we get that. God promises not like a heavenly grandparent to just give you candy, but he does promise that everything that he's working together is for your good. Let's keep going. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? So here, Paul asks, what conclusion, what response is fitting on our part to what he's just said? If God is for us, who can be against us? See, that's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is we live in this world, and it can be terrifying to live in a universe and a world where God is absolutely sovereign, where he declares the end from the beginning and says he's going to accomplish his good pleasure, where he says the nations are as dust in the scales, less than dust, less than nothing. And we can say, uh-oh. And the gospel is the promise, the invitation, that if you will come to the Son, if you will turn from whatever it is you're serving, whatever gods you're worshiping, whatever you're building your life on that is sand, if you will turn from that and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, God will forgive you. God will bring you into his family and be for you. And now this doctrine of the sovereignty of God becomes glorious because God controls all things and God is unconditionally for me and you. See how that becomes great news? This isn't teaching Christians should be forgetting. We should be excited by the reality that God controls all things. His will is sovereign and his will is for us. For us. This is glorious news. Now let's put that into further context. He offers proof. Because again, the temptation is when tragedy, when trial, when death, when sickness, when calamity comes, we can be tempted to think, does God still love me? Does, does God still care for me? Right? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So the first place to look to when you wrestle with the sovereignty of God and his control, and you wrestle with believing he means you good, he means good for you, is to look to the gift of his son. Paul's logic is simple. If he gave you the most needful, wonderful, glorious, valuable gift, what makes you think he'll be stingy with the lesser ones? Who shall bring any charge against God's elected is God who justifies? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So now the picture is the spirit, we just read earlier, is in us praying. God is the one giving his son for us. And the son, crucified and risen, is interceding on our behalf. The entire trinity is at work serving our need. God is causing all things to work together for good for us. He is for us. And then in that context, Paul begins to list some scary, difficult things. It's not that God being for us spares you from the sword or from tribulation, famine, persecution, nakedness, danger. 
It's that these things will be used by him in his plan for our good. They do not mean you've moved an iota from God's love for you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation, we know the early church faced tribulation. He's not saying the love of Christ will keep you from tribulation. What he's saying is the love of Christ will keep you in tribulation. You can be in tribulation, and don't you dare think for a second you're because of that tribulation, you've been removed, you've been distanced from God's love. Or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written. For your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It's a quote of Psalm 44. Even if you look out and it looks as though God is selling his people cheaply, which is what Psalm 44 is wrestling with, Lord, why are you surrendering your people? Why are we being killed all day long for your sake? Even then, God's love is operative, knowing all these things, in all these things, not from all these things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the glorious truth of God's sovereignty and control. Okay? Man, we got to move. So that's how we ought to speak. Speak as those coming from your heart, believing, understanding. We live in a universe that God rules. We draw our every breath at his behest, but know that this God who rules is for you. If you are reconciled to him through his son, if you have turned to the Lord Jesus Christ and put your trust in him, you are beloved, you are drawn near, and God is unconditionally for you. He is causing all things to work together for your good. Rejoice in that. Remember that. Make your plans in that awareness. Next, let's look at what's going on in the heart of those who forget. No, no. And he writes, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. Now here he reveals the heart motive. The heart motive. This is an expression of arrogance, pride. It may not obviously be that. We're going to do this, we're going to do that. But if you're planning and making plans apart from a sovereign God who determines what will happen, you are arrogant. You have forgotten that you are a vapor, a mist. You've forgotten that you don't know the future. And your heart is speaking from arrogance. Here's your blank next. Self-reliance is rooted in pride. Self-reliance, which we sometimes view as, as a virtue, I am the captain of my fate. That's pride talking. That's pride talking. Self-reliance is rooted in pride. Jeremiah 17, 5, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Or Psalm 46, 3 to 5, put not your trust in princes, and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and that very day his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. This also then goes against his instruction earlier in the epistle, 
that they should rather boast in their humiliation, in their humiliation. Back in James chapter 1, his first addressing of the socioeconomic issues, the particular trials and temptations of the rich and poor, he says this, verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. You know, different people need different counsel. There are some who are so discouraged, so downcast that they can celebrate the high calling they have in Christ. I may be nothing. I may be no one. I may be ashamed in this life and considered as nothing, but God loved me and sent his son to die for me. And he's brought me into his family and he's appointed me to reign with Christ. There are people who need to focus on that reality. Most of us don't. Most of us, I think, are far more in danger of the other pole, thinking we're more than we are because we have stuff and we can accomplish stuff. And because at times we are able to accomplish our will on earth, I, I think the, the advice to the rich is far more likely where we're at. There may well be exceptions. Just remember, you live in the richest country in the richest time of the world. And rather, we had a boast in our humiliation. What does that look like? All of my good deeds, all of my abilities, all my power, all my strength, all that I can accomplish is less than nothing. It's dust in the scales. And I was so helpless and so sinful and corrupt that the only possible way that God could not make an end of me and sentence me to eternal damnation is by sending his sinless son. I needed that great of a sacrifice to be redeemed. That's what means to boast in your humiliation. Boasting that I'm powerless to save myself, but I have a God who has saved me. I'm powerless to atone, but there is one who has provided atonement. That's, I think, more likely what we need to be focusing on. To guard us from the pride that comes from thinking we can do things. And we can at times if the Lord wills. The problem is we get so used to accomplishing our will, him giving that grace that we presume upon it, and then we boast, and that boasting is evil. We should rather boast in their humiliation. And here we get James' clear moral judgment, in case there's any doubt. All such boasting is evil. All such boasting is evil. Let's be clear, if you've made plans, if you've spoken your plans, you've done it in a way that left God out of the equation, it's not just that that wasn't good. James says that's evil. That's evil. He means what he says. And I think the text indicates that he thinks we're not going to make much of this because of what he says next. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. I think that's James' way of saying, I know you're tempted to look and be like, well, okay, if you say so, James, and go back to life as normal. But if, and here's we're moving to do, do. If the Lord's convicted you in any of this, the Lord has shown you changes you need to make, to not do that is sin. To not do that is sin because, point one here, right thinking is necessary but insufficient. Right thinking is necessary but insufficient. You can't do right, do what is right, 
until you know what is right. And so you need truth. You, you need to read God's word. You need to be here. But simply hearing it and even agreeing with it is insufficient. We saw this back in chapter 2. Oh, you believe God is one. Even the demons believe. Demons probably in some respects have better theology than we do. Less error. They just hate it. We need to know what is right, but until we actually do it, if anything, we're bringing more judgment upon ourselves. Knowing the right thing is, is completely insufficient. You need to do the right thing. And if God has shown you a good thing to do, you need to do it or it's sin. James is real clear here. You see, there are sins of commission and omission. And we often get our attention turned to those sins of commission, doing the evil that we should not do, getting drunk, getting angry, using foul language, getting in a fight. But there's also sins of omission, things that God wants us to do, God calls on us to do, and we don't do them. Those are the ones that can slip by on our radar, and James is saying, no, 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 no. If you're in any way convicted by what I'm saying, if you recognize this admonition lands rightly on you and you don't actually change how you think and how you speak, you're sinning. See, he, he expects or he suspects that we will make light of this, that we won't take it seriously. It's good to remember God's in charge. no. If you recognize, and I do this, that you are planning your life largely apart from factoring in a sovereign God, you need to do some radical changing in your thinking and your speaking. It's really dangerous to sit in a, in a service and hear a message and get convicted. Don't actually change, but you, you, you assuage yourself by thinking of how convicted I was. I've done this before. I must be growing. Why? I was really convicted by that message last week. Watch out. Change doesn't happen until change happens. Until you actually put into practice the good you know to do, you could, you're no different from a demon who knows the truth. And so James adds this last little zinger here to challenge us to act. We must be hearers and effectual doers, which of course, this gets right back in line with James's teaching about the dangers of being hearers only and not effectual doers. Finally, point four, our deeds confirm our repentance and faith. This is just back in line bread and butter of what James teaches, which is that you'll know what you believe by what you do. And so if you're in any way challenged by this, and I am, if we don't purpose and plan right here, right now to put into practice and change how we're planning, how we're thinking, how we're speaking... We don't really believe it. We don't really believe it at all. Well, we're going to stop here. I'm going to call the worship team up. We're going to sing a song in preparation for communion. Um, so let me call the worship team up and I'll pray while they come. Lord, we don't want to be hearers only. We want to be effectual doers. We don't want to know the right thing to do and yet fail to do it. We want to do what is right and to know what is right. We want to take great comfort and hope and joy in the truth that you are for us and you rule all things and we can trust you with those things. We can trust you that you mean good for us. Let us not be frightened by that truth, but to revel and glory in it and then live and think and plan in that reality. In Jesus' name, 
Amen.